This episode of the My Latin Life podcast is brought to you by BitRefill. BitRefill is the best way to spend your crypto in Latin America. Purchase gift cards or mobile refills from more than 3,500 brands in 186 countries instantly, safely, and privately. Visit bitrefill.com for more information. Welcome back to the My Latin Life podcast. Since 2014, My Latin Life has been your trusted guide to traveling and living in Latin America. My guest today is Alex from EcoInstant. He's a Colombian farmland investor. And I heard about this guy on Twitter. He started replying to some of the tweets and he said, yeah, I have 97 acres in Colombia. I got a whole team. We're doing farm stuff. And I was like, what? That sounds crazy. I got to hear about this. So we got Alex on the podcast to hear about his story of coming to Columbia in 2009 with 80 bucks in his pocket, and now he's got 97 acres. So Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Vance. It's really great to be here, and it's been really great interacting with you guys on Twitter. I personally think that if more people, as more people, figure out what we already know, there's going to start to be an exodus from high-cost living places like California, but not limited to California. And they're going to be coming here to Latin America. And, you know, time will tell how that's going to go. But we've done it already. And so we just want to share with everybody. That's that's really what it's about uh, on social media. Like, hey, there's some cool stuff happening. Uh, pay attention because people in the U.S. are really suffering right now. Europe, Canada. The high cost of living is ridiculous. I can't even believe it. It was bad when I left, and it has gotten uh, insane. So, so yeah, man, I, I just want everybody listening to this to open your mind a little bit because the, the geo-maxing, uh, the geo-arbitrage is real, and you can have a, a really different style of life by coming down to Latin America. Thank you for that. So you think, uh, you think we're on to something here at My Latin Life? Definitely, definitely on to what I think could be the next big trend. Um, when I was a kid, people said, vote with your feet. And I think mm. they meant like, you know, I'm from Wisconsin. So people meant like, I'm going to go to Iowa or something. But <laughs> when I figured that out, like, I'm going to vote with my feet. Like, and the cost of living in Colombia, I've seen some of the charts you've been posting, is one of the lowest in, in the entire Americas, North and South America. And it's really uh, a great quality of life with a really uh, minimal pension or minimal income, whether you're a freelancer or, or you got like a disability check. I've been trying to get some of my friends and uh, people I work with to just move down here and be able to focus on what you really want to do instead of not being able to focus on anything because you're, you have to make $5,000, $6,000, $7,000 a month just to make the ends meet. And in your neck of the woods, which is the, the, the department of Tolima, Colombia, how much you think someone needs to live well per month, cost of living? It, it's crazy. You know, I, uh, I, I'm freelance, so I do different things. And, uh, you know, I can make it with $500 a month or even maybe a little less. Uh, the minimum wage here is like two seventy five. Um, and so it depends how integrated you get, you know, a lot of people talk about Medellin 
And it is obviously more expensive in the cities. We're in the northern part of Tolima. We're in the in El Campo. And uh, it's just one thing I got to mention is the food. So we live where the food is grown. So the food is all high quality. The cows eat grass. And five, six, seven hundred dollars a month, you're starting to like live like a king. You know, you could do whatever you want. Uh, and usually what I find is what people want is not to play video games in their room. What they want to do is start a business, invest in something, change the world, do uh, live out their mission that they've always had. And so to me, it's really freeing. The uh, lowering of the cost of living opens you up to a freedom that uh, mm-hmm. can allow you to take risks, can allow you to start a new business, figure out what you want to do with your life if you haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I would say here in Tolima, it's, it's even cheaper than, uh, Medellin. Yeah, that makes sense. Dude, you came up firing at the start of this episode. This is great. You got, uh, you got the pitch down better than I do. I've been working on it. I've been working on it. I've been blogging for six years now and I just started Twitter again. I said, okay, I think I'm ready. I've got, I've done some things. Cause we you know when we started with the farmland, uh, we were still figuring it out. You know, what do you do with the farmland? Um, maybe I could talk a little bit about that. Uh, so one of the big Hell yeah, things dude. With- I want to get way into detail about that. So anyone listening to this podcast, if you are a man, you probably want to own a farm, right? So we are going to get into that in painful amount of detail in this episode, just because selfishly, it's something that I think about a lot and I have no idea what I'm doing. So we're going to use Alex as kind of our, our, uh, our help here to figure out, to just mentally visualize what that would look like. Because again, when I saw on your Twitter, you're like, yeah, I got a hundred acres. I got workers. I guess you probably do like fruit trees. I don't, I don't even know yet, but I'm like, that's insane. How and so we got, we got to hear the whole thing here. Okay. Yeah. And it is a great story. And uh, it's been about 10 years uh, since we bought the first farm and we've learned a lot. And so there's, there are obstacles. Uh, and the first thing is uh, gringo pricing. So it's hard when you get started to figure out how to buy land um, and not get ripped off. Um, there isn't a Zillow down here, right? You can't easily, you know, scrape APIs to figure out what is the price per hectare. Um, you got to kind of get integrated into a community, speak Spanish or have some really trustworthy people on your side. Uh, so I will say we overpaid for the first farm, not too much, still cheap in U.S. terms, but we did overpay and we moved here and it was monoculture coffee. And so we got into the coffee game, you know, we're That's learning dope. about coffee and coffee is a fun uh, thing. It's gotten really popular. Um, but one thing that I had always, you know, I was into like sustainable development. And I thought, you know, if people in the countryside are so poor, why aren't they doing something different? You know, like, so I kind of wanted to come in and figure out how I could improve it, how I could just figure out what were the obstacles. And so that got me uh, into uh, this space where we would buy up uh, some farm where there was no road access. And then we would hire like a, a machine, a bulldozer, a caterpillar. We'd fix up the road and then we'd flip the farm. So we'd triple the, the, the price per acre just Purely by fixing by up a road. road. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, 
I can do this because we identified accessibility as one of the big problems. So like, this is great. I could do this. I made some friends with people with these machines, uh, made some good businesses there. And so we started learning access to the market. Uh, and so, okay, so why aren't the farmers transforming their goods? And uh, we, we helped a, a local business start up a coffee roaster. And now they're in our little town, there's 38 different uh, brands of coffee, uh, single origin coffees, where when we started, there was maybe one. So this first property that you bought, how is it measured? Is it per square meter or what is the metric? Yeah, so down here they measure in hectares, uh, which is you know two and a half acres. And each hectare is 10,000 square meters. And it's, it's interesting because in the mountains, uh, you get a lot of uh, steep slopes. And the, the square meters are measured by the satellite, like flat space. So mm -hmm. actually, steep slope farms are bigger uh, geometrically than flat farms. Damn, so, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's actually, it's, you got to be a little careful. A lot of people will say their farm is, let's say they'll say it's 10 hectares, and you'll measure it and it'll be six. And that's because they measured on an angle instead of from the satellite. <laughs> but it's so, got to be satellite. Well, that's how, right. So a lot of times, you know, when you come in, if you actually get out your GPS and you measure it, you can get some really good prices on these steep slope farms. Because you say, actually, you know, here's the map. You know, your farm's only six hectares. And farms are generally negotiated by price per hectare. Mm -hmm. So we were able, we've been able to do things like that. Uh, the EGAC, the Institute of... Uh, geological studies they that's how they measure it flat from the satellite and so people know but they'll often inflate uh, not just the price but also the size of their farms hmm. so so that's another tricky point uh you know all this stuff we've learned over the course of 10 years which is why you know i started setting up uh this fund where other people you know i had some friends and some family members just said, well, you know, we would like to do something like that, but but you got to manage it for us because we don't know what, what we're doing. And I say, yeah, that's, I feel a little bit, I posted a link from Steve Irwin. He says, I love money. Money's great. You know what I'm going to do with it? I'm going to buy a bunch of land. And that I feel like that too. I don't need a land. I saw anymore. that. I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to buy a bunch of land and it's, uh, this is what I love to do. So it's fun. And so, you know, obviously the price has changed in, in the past 10 years, but roughly what kind of price per hectare are we looking at? So around here, it's ranging from, let's say, 2000 per hectare to 10000 per hectare. I'm talking U.S. dollars. And that's um, now or 10 years ago? That's right now. Okay. And that's going to depend on how close you are to road access, how close you are to a town. Um, I like, I prefer buying underpriced properties and making them uh, more valuable. Uh, but sometimes, you know, I have a project here, my main project, you know, sometimes to pick up a neighbor's property, it, it's worth a little more to me because it's right next to something I'm building. Mm -hmm. um, but generally, you have to be as patient as you can. Uh, the Latin American people, the Colombian, in my experience, can sense if you are eager 
you know, they're going to overcharge you. So you have to be, there was a property we bought just last year. I've been negotiating with the guy for six years. And finally, we came to an agreement, you know, it took six years, but I got the piece I wanted. And so you just got to, you have to kind of play their game, right? Not play our game. Uh, you know, we're, we're so business and clock and punctuality oriented, and they're not at all. <laughs> they're way different. Hmm. And how do you find these deals? Well, one advantage I have is that I've become integrated in my local community. So we've lived here for uh, since 2012 in this town. So that's 11 years now. People know me. Um, and at this point, a lot of times I, I become somewhat of a real estate agent, really locally. People will come and tell me about the farm they're trying to sell. Um, people will ask me, do you know of any farms? Uh, right now, the big deal is people in the cities are trying to move, uh, you know, back to the pueblos. They don't want to be caught, just even Colombians in Bogota or Colombians in Ibagué, they don't want to be caught in another pandemic in the city. And so I kind of identified these trends pre-pandemic. Colombia had become, I think it was 87 or 88% urbanized. It was the, the most urbanized country in the world. And I said, you know, th this trend can only go so far. Um, in 2014, I think they began the peace process. And I said, you know, I really think I'm onto something here. I want to get ahead of this wave. People are going to eventually come back to the countryside. Uh, it's in their, it's in their mythos, you know, La Finca. And so they think about it. They, they want that, or maybe they think they want it. But now when people are coming back from the city, they don't want to walk 30 minutes to their farm. They don't. They want their car to arrive <laughs> right to their house, right? They want a road. And so the farms that people are selling are not necessarily the ones that people want to buy. And so there's some disconnect. Like I said, there's no, uh, <laughs> there's no app that helps people connect. Um, so I've been able to kind of get in there as a middleman and work on that, uh, make some money, yes, but also provide a lot of value to the community. Um, like I, I mentioned recently on, on Twitter, uh, I'm not a gringo. I'm the gringo. That's what they click, el gringo. So, and that is one cool thing about living in a small town. Uh, there's not a, it's not like Medellin or other, other popular tourist destinations. Um, you, can, you can become a part of your community uh, if you work at it. And working at it just means speaking Spanish because people are generally in the rural areas are generally very friendly. They want to mm -hmm. know their neighbors. They're, they're even nosy, but that's, I don't think that's unique to hear, but, cheese but, uh, exactly. <laughs> so, so cheese. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to the integration stuff. I, d I just wanted to kind of con continue the thought a little bit around numbers and the business. Cause I'm just a, a cold hearted American. Um, so the, the town that you're nearest to, if I had this right, would be Chaparral? Uh, Chaparral is in Tolima, but it's a little further away. We are uh, near El Libano, which uh -huh. is uh, about 50,000 people, um, maybe two hours north of Ibagué. 
And actually from Libano, I can grab a bus to Manizales about mm-hmm. three hours over the mountain. They just fixed that road up. And so I actually prefer to go to Manizales to do any paperwork or, oh, you know, really? visit the, uh, I think it's putting me to the wrong one on the map because I'm seeing some, th- like, I'm seeing like, I'm not seeing a 50,000 person town, but, uh, like I'm seeing like San Antonio, um, I guess it doesn't matter, but, um, so El Libano, Tolima, um, so let's get back to the, the price per hectare because I, I think it's really interesting because there's people don't realize how cheap it can be. You're talking two to ten thousand, let's just call it five thousand dollars for a hectare, which is two and a half acres. And how how large like what's the average purchase size? Is it five hectares? Is it ten acres? And are you trying to get bigger plots or are you trying to get small plots? that are connected and kind of stitch them together? Yeah, okay. So the average size, I would say, is two to three hectares. So six to eight or nine acres in that range. Um, And the closer you get to the towns, the smaller they are. The farther away, the bigger they are. And so it really depends. I've identified a few ways to add value. Uh, And one of those is stitching together uh, larger farms from smaller properties. Uh, one of them's building roads, which I mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. Another one, uh, we had one successful project, uh, dividing it up. Uh, I'd like to do some more of that. I want to kind of be be careful. I don't like the current model. I mean, a lot of Colombians are doing it. They'll buy some piece of property and divide it up into these lots. And uh, these lots are just too tiny, uh, you know, seven by 13 meters. I hate that. So I'm looking to, to, to get a little bit, um, maybe more like uh, condos with some space, uh, like a homeowners association. So it'll like manage your, your, your plants and your trees for you. I'm looking mm-hmm. to get something a little bit more, um, first world, let's see, maybe I could say, but, uh, you know, I'm looking at different ideas. There was one property I'm working on right now. Uh, it actually, the, the people there, they still use, uh, mules to get their coffee out. They go down to the river. They go up the other side. They always have problems uh, with transportation. And so I looked at this. I bought this property for right around 2000 per hectare. Uh, we bought 17 hectares. It's got waterfalls on both sides. It's got the, it's beautiful. And I said, I could put in a, a, a cable, right? And we could run a cable car here and we're going to completely transform this uh this situation. So you got to, to me, the, the thing is a transformation. Where is the value you can add? Uh, the cable is not very expensive unless you're a poor farmer, right? Then it's expensive. So you, I have a to think about. Car? Yeah, you know, like a, a garucha. I'm not sure exactly. Telesferico. What is the word in English? Yeah, yeah I know that teleferico is a cable yeah. car. And you're putting that on your land? We're going to. We're going to. Um, I'm actually. But like with at, like pillars. Yeah. And it's in the air, or is it like sliding on the ground? No, no, right across the valley, right. So the people actually, it's oh, got this like big literally river. with ca- with cables in the like like suspension in the air. Yeah, and so uh, I'm looking first. I'd like to buy like a few more farms in the area. I did some math, and so the investment is good, but I'd I'd love to have more land before I do that. So. 
So, because I really think yeah, yeah, that's, that's a whole not- can of worms. This episode of the My Latin Life podcast is brought to you by Language Blend, the new best way to learn Spanish. Language Blend focuses on what you actually need to live and get by abroad with daily one on one lessons, a dedicated texting partner. It's like living in a Spanish speaking country without ever leaving home. Go to languageblend.com for more information. Can, can I ask you, Alex, so, um, you know, you mentioned coffee a bit earlier. You've also kind of mentioned doing residential stuff or kind of targeting people from Bogota for like a residential kind of finca, I guess you could say. Or what is the main export or what's the main economic activity going on here? Because I guess you're growing something and then you're selling it to distributors and then it's kind of like sold nationally. Could you kind of explain what the economic activity going on here is yeah it's a big it's a big issue because here it's an agricultural region so we're talking coffee cafe platano uh, plantains and aguacate avocados um a little bit further up the mountain they do uh blue blackberries and they do a few other things potatoes but uh that's the big thing in this region and so i got this farm it's a coffee farm and I said, well, let's put in some avocados inside the coffee. So that's going good. But also there's like guava um, and uh, mm-hmm. these other fruit trees. This is, they call it pan coger. So like people will grow a lot of fruits, but they don't really sell them. So there's, it's, it's so undeveloped. You know, we talked about this first world, second world, and third world. So let me just mention this right now. The first world This is an original definition. The first world has working infrastructure. The second world referred to the ex-Soviet Union countries where they used to have infrastructure. It's still there, but it's like broken. Mm -hmm. And then the third world, they don't have the infrastructure yet. And so, you know, those qualifications, we kind of understand that third world, I guess, is worse than first world. But when you look at it from an investor standpoint, the second and the third world actually have some benefits because the first world, it's like the things are already in place and either they work for you or they don't. But when there hasn't been infrastructure yet, it's an opportunity to think now with our modern uh, you know, technology, our modern studies, and there's a lot of stuff going on like in the uh, regenerative agriculture space, like, and, and, and the, like with that cable car, like we can think differently and we don't have to like be locked into the infrastructure that's already there there is no infrastructure we can decide how to implement it so people do monoculture because they that's what they understand and so i am interested in kind of breaking that system uh everything that's sold here they, they grow coffee platanos and avocados because that's what people buy that's what the you know the markets in the town will buy and so I could sell flowers, you know, Heliconia flowers to Bogota. But what, I, what do I need to do to do that? Okay, I need to figure out how to get the flower from here to Bogota. Okay, so I need a cold truck. And so if I'm going to get a cold truck, I need to produce a certain amount of flowers to fill up the truck. So every thought about what you grow is possible. It's like a whole realm of possibilities. But you have to figure out the whole chain. It's not there yet. Nobody's done it before. And so there are people growing flowers, just not in this town. So, okay, so maybe I can go visit the town that grows flowers. What can I learn from them? 
like this this is what i'm talking about this is a this is a lifestyle of like on the ground investing that i couldn't have even imagined when i was in the united states like it's like go get a job work for somebody else do what they tell you but down here it's like it's blown my mind open like i can do anything and there's a hundred things to do which of them do i want to do well let me pick one try it for a while see if it works you know and so this is what how we started with the coffee nobody was roasting the coffee they were all selling it to the federation and so we said well we're going to roast the coffee we're going to sell it you know in one pound packages uh and so we started to do that and everybody said that's a great idea let's do that too and so that's been going on. Coffee's been getting popular. The space kind of got saturated. I do. I don't really grow as much coffee anymore, uh, but I do continue to consult with local people. This is a great idea for you. I kind of, I kind of felt like the space was uh, complicated, uh, and you know we could do a coffee podcast if you want. Why that's complicated, but. I started growing. Fun fact: I'm I'm actually in a coffee region of Mexico right now, so I'm up in the mountains. It's misty, uh, nice. so it doesn't it does interest me. Yeah. So the mountains are the best. Just for anybody who wants to travel, the let's say um, twelve hundred meters to two thousand meters, really anywhere in the tropics. That's where you want to be. You don't need heat. You don't need air conditioning. That's the best mm-hmm. climate. I mean, that's just a rule of thumb for anybody who wants to travel and maybe live somewhere. That is the best altitude to be at. I mean, would you agree, Vance? Yeah, I'd agree. It's There's less sun, I would say, which, which would be the downside, but it still peaks out every day. True, true. Yeah, right. You got you to gotta get outside when the sun's outside. But you can go. Now, I imagine Mexico is similar. You can, like, go down the mountain and go to the sun or go to the beach. You can go sweat if you want <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, we have uh, here in Colombia, we have a bimodal uh, season. So I don't know if in Mexico you get like six months of rain and six months of sun, but we have three months on, three months off. So we have a bimodal climate, which I really like. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't rain too much for me to get like bored with it. And it doesn't, you know, it's not too much summer for me to like, you know, want to go See, visit. What Wisconsin. elevation are you at? Uh, so right now I'm sitting on what I call my main farm, my investigation, my research center. Uh, <laughs> and we're at 1800, which, you know, again, I'm from a cold climate. I, this, I like this. Uh, I need cool, cold nights to sleep. I, I need to have a blanket. I, I can't mean. sleep in I the hot. Uh, right. I guess for, for reference, anyone listening to this. So Mexico city is, uh, 2,200 meters um, Guadalajara is about 1500 meters where I am right now is 1400 meters. So like you, you definitely nailed it with the sweet spot, kind of the 1200 to 2000. Yeah. And so look at all those big cities. Like that's why they're at those. I think that's probably why they built those cities there. Cause this is, you know, if you get down to the lowlands here in Colombia, it it's even, it's even stressful, the climate. And you can see there's yeah, a whole yeah, different culture. Yeah, there's a whole different culture of people that like work in the early morning and the afternoon and spend all day in their hammock drinking beer. And <laughs> uh, and, and even in Colombia, like the Paisas, uh, they consider those people really lazy. They have a really lazy culture. And the Paisa culture in the mountains is a really uh, relatively for Latin American terms, hardworking culture. Yeah, entrepreneurial. 
entrepreneurial. Exactly. And so the climate has a lot to do with a lot of this stuff. But uh, I would recommend people, you know, when you say Colombia or Mexico, there's a lot of different places and they're very different. <laughs> so Alex is a mountain man. Uh, for anyone trying to visualize what he looks like, he has a gigantic beard, gigantic <laughs> blonde blonde beard. Dirty yes. Blonde. Yes. And uh, I like it. I, I like growing it out. I, I shave it. I fix it up about twice a year. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, that's enough for me, you know, and I think everybody could pick the lifestyle they want. But I am so happy out here in the mountains. And uh, one thing one thing I wanted to get into is so we get back to land in a second. But I was interested in your opinion, Vance, somebody who's been doing this for a little bit longer. When I meet, uh, there's a certain class of, and I think they call these the passport bros, but there's a certain class of gringo, we'll say, that, uh, you know, I almost am reluctant to invite them to visit me because they're into like uh, partying and getting drunk and, you know, I want to sleep with a lot of women and like, I guess my interest is a little more wholesome. Like I want to invest and be free and, and, and help people mm-hmm. develop more than I want to like uh, live a certain lifestyle of debauchery, you know? And so both of those worlds do exist here, you know, like, so I don't know in Mexico, but I know in Costa Rica here in Colombia, prostitution is legal, for example. So like, you know, when somebody reaches out to me and one of their questions is, so, yeah, tell me about the prostitutes. I'm like, maybe you want to talk to somebody else. I don't want to talk to you anymore. <laughs> like, if that's your number one interest of, you know, I'm not interested in that. that there are people that are, you know, that are, are would see, love. I don't even see how. If I saw a photo of you with the gigantic beard and all that, I wouldn't be like, where are we partying? I'd be like, which wholesome yoga retreat are we doing? <laughs> right, right. Okay. And it's not that I don't enjoy having some beers or some whiskeys but you know it's like an attitude about life um yeah you know what i think um is it might be a necessary intermediate step where it's very difficult to go straight from the u.s to a farm in tolima like that's a very difficult decision to make and i you know there there kind of needs to be an intermediate step where you pull up in the big city you pull up in bogota or medellin and yeah, you're going to hit the clubs a little bit. You know what I mean? But then once you're in the country, once you kind of see what's going on, you start picking up the language, then you start going, you know, what would be cool getting out of the city, you know, getting into the mountains, that kind of thing. Totally, totally right. And I agree with that. Uh, there's nothing wrong with going to the city and partying it up. But I want to come home and, uh, you know, have have my wife make some food. I want to, you know work on the farm i want like, to have the but here, no one's going to come from the u.s and like book on airbnb a farm in the middle of nowhere where you're going to need to rent a car to get to like there kind of needs to be as a digital nomad or expat for most people there's going to have to be an intermediate step i think where as a digital nomad you know you're doing you're kind of like what what i see is you start as a digital nomad and you just want to kind of travel the world and do cool stuff and, you know, one month per city, that kind of thing. And then you go, you know what, pretty much everywhere I've been is better than the U.S. Let's just pick a place and kind of settle down, um, you know, 
get a long-term lease, maybe you get a girlfriend, that kind of thing. And it, it, it'll, it'll evolve into the direction where you are, Alex. And, you know, you've taken it to the, I wouldn't say taken it to the extreme, but you're well developed on that path of, you know, integrating in the community. You probably, what kind of car you got? I got a 1979 Nissan Patrol. And uh, I love this car. It's got nothing electronic. It's got, it's easy to fix. I know the mechanic. It cost me like $1.50 to fix, you know, most things, you know, and I get under the car with them. And uh, these cars are easy to fix. They fix them forever down here. Uh, it's got the four Oh, this thing drive. is epic looking. It's like boxy. Yes. It's, yes. It's, it looks like those old school Land Rovers and stuff, but it's a Nissan. I bought this car for $2,000. And, you know, I keep it fixed up. I, I've replaced a couple of things. I probably got another maybe a grand into it. Um, and I was just, I was looking. I could probably sell it for six or $7,000 right now. If you brought this um, to the States, it'd be worth 30. Right, right. And so it's, these are the type of things like people don't, uh, they don't know, you know? And, and so maybe that's you can our whole business doing this, eh? Drive these things to Cartagena, put them on a container, sell them in the States. Right, right. And, uh, but just yeah, the this joy. Is classic. This is like the uh, classic, like Campo car in Colombia, right? Like all the cafeteros got something like this. That's right. And so this car I've used to build uh, and fix up a lot of the roads uh, that we've been working on. So we, you know, could put in uh, down here, material is a, is a big issue. So one of the things we do is we take when people fix up their, their houses, all that broken fire brick and, and broken up cement, we'll take that and we'll take that material and we'll use that to fix up our roads. So we get a lot of times not... Well, sometimes people will pay us to take the material, but a lot of times we at least get it for free and we use that to fix up the road. And so like, I don't know, it's like a win-win thing. I have a lot of fun doing stuff like this where, you know, you kind of really fill in a niche. And I think you're right. You hit the nail on the head. Nobody can come down and do what I do on day one. It's impossible. Um, and I even I didn't start doing this. Uh, you know, I moved to Bogota. I got a job teaching English. I didn't have any money. I my Spanish was weak, although I had studied Spanish. But you know, through the immersion process and and Bogota, Medellin, also really nice because around the cities there's all sorts of these little pueblos, and so you know you start heading outside of the city on the weekends or the, los puentes, uh, the holiday weekends, and you start to get to know and you you know get that Spanish immersion. Get out of the gringo only spaces, you know, get out of the expat communities and really test yourself with Spanish. Uh, Colombians uh, in particular are really generous with the language. If you try, they try. And they're so grateful that you're trying to speak Spanish that they will teach you for free. Uh, you just got to get out there yeah. and try. And so uh, I figured it out over time, you know, freelancing, different things, translations, uh, websites. And uh, slowly it took me four or five years to get this, you know, figured out and buy the first farm. Uh, but you don't you don't get to this point without taking that leap of faith. you got to mm -hmm. take a leap of faith. And really, to the people in the U.S. who need $7,000 a month to live, what what? Uh, what do you have to lose? You know, like 
give it a try. It's awesome down here. Do you have kids, by the way? I uh, have one on the way, and I'm work. I would like to have ten. We'll see how it goes. Um, <laughs> Sounds like Twitter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I like the idea of kids. You know, you actually have to. Uh, you know, I didn't have any by accident, which I thought would have been cool, but I didn't. <laughs> um, so I have to put in some work to make it happen, and so okay. we're working. So your lady's expecting. Yeah, yeah, we're 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 gonna make it happen, and uh, you know, I'm doing some research now. I have to like prepare to make sure. You know, one thing we, I know you mentioned a lot is healthcare. Um, I want to make sure that you know we get the right healthcare. Uh, it the healthcare system here is different than the United States. So basically, whatever you want to do, uh, you could do. You could just go and pay for it. Uh, but if, if you, right. But if you go into the regular system, they'll tell you what you need to do. So I know there's, there's a lot of stuff about, uh, you know, the right way to, to, to have kids. And so I'm doing some research right now. You'll be fine. All right. All right. I just wanted to get a, get a, get a a feel for this, your situation. Um, can we, can we please just keep talking about land? Cause (laughs) it's so interesting to me. Uh, (laughs) um, Okay, so you're buying these farms that are on average nine acres, three hectares, let's say. So you're saying four grand to six grand per three to ten. Let's just call it five, six grand per hectare. So you're investing about 15 grand per purchase. Yeah, I mean, averages are are kind of misleading. But yeah, yeah, it depends on the project. Uh, I'm Okay, what's the upper bounds? Yeah. Okay. Let me think here. I, uh, I did buy recently three and a half hectares and it cost me 20. I'm just mental mathing here. The exchange rate, about 27,000. Um, so that's, that's pretty close here to the town, uh, which is where I've been focusing my efforts recently. Uh, I, I got this area that I really like uh, we're still fixing up the road, so the prices are still kind of cheap. But I think it could be like, you know, it could be a barrio del, uh, of the of the town in the future. Oh, it's that close. You could make it like a a commute, like a yeah, like a suburban community. Yeah, thing. a little suburb outside of the city, but like uh, right outside of the city. So, gotcha. Um, that's kind of where I'm focusing my effort. Maybe now I I did buy some cheap ones at some time, uh, but. But I think right now I'm focusing more on the six, six thousand a hectare, let's say. Um, Higher quality, closer to stuff. And it all depends, right? Because there is time. Time has been a challenge for me. Um, And so and we can get into this. So like, okay, you buy a farm. It's got coffee on it. And what most people will do who've gotten to this point is they will hire a local to manage it. And. That has some challenges to it, and I've we've learned all about this. So, um, pe- local people know how to do what local people have been doing, and that's monoculture. And so you'll have a plan, you'll make a plan, and you, you have to buy so much poison, and you have to buy so much fertilizer, and and they do the thing. And coffee, you know, it, coffee produces, and then you got to split the profits uh, with it. And that's if the coffee price is good, because if the coffee price is low, the, the administrator might say, hey, I need more. 
or even I need you to give me some money uh, in, during the load time. So all of a sudden, the people have this farm and they're thinking like, I'm not making any money. This farm is costing me money. It's like a hobby now. And so maybe the land price goes up. But while you're, you know, you have this maintenance cost now because, you know, you're kind of running it and you got to pay the guy. You got to make sure the guy uh, doesn't like steal from you. You got to make sure he's trustworthy. It's not always easy to find a guy if you're not integrated in the community. Uh, I know uh, some local people, this is their biggest problem. You know, mm-hmm. uh, one of my neighbors has gone through four different administrators in the last year. And they, one of the things they say locally is nobody wants to work. And it's like, well, that could be true. But basically, the monoculture system is broken. Um, so one of the things we've had success in doing is trying to transform the systems. And we're training our own people. So we try to get uh, people that have some experience in, the, in, in farming, but not a ton. And we train them. And so when we train them, we're teaching them how to do something a little bit different. And we do pay them a little bit more than the average wage. But again, the average wage is so low. And so one of the things that I'm working on right now is uh, actually fence posts. So people here, they cut down trees. There's some eucalyptus crops for fence posts, but mostly they're going into like scrub forests and they're chopping down trees to get fence posts. And there's always a demand for fence posts. So I, I started cropping fence posts with some native trees. And that has gone really well for us. And so and people are like, they're getting it. Like, oh, yeah, fence posts. I know where to sell those. And so we kind of changed the model. We train our own people. And one of the things I'd like to do is to kind of start a school. Um, and so that'll be a, a, the next 10-year plan. But um, that is really challenging for people when they, when they try to go in this direction. It ends up being a hobby. And maybe if they sell the land, they can recover some profit because land prices have been depressed in Colombia, in the countryside, and they are going up, back up again. Um, mm-hmm. But our goal is to be able to realize profit before you sell. I mean, selling is good and you can flip, but wouldn't it be great if we could manage these better, right. employ a whole bunch of people and be producing? You know, So that's kind of our goal. Hey guys, quick interruption to tell you about BitRefill. BitRefill is the best way to convert your crypto into gift card balances. These are gift cards that you can spend at Hotels.com, Airbnb, Nike, and many more. You may remember Joel Valenzuela, previous podcast guest. He's been living on crypto exclusively since 2015, and he's a big consumer of BitRefill. And so I asked Joel, I said, what do you like most about BitRefill? He said that he likes the instant delivery the precise amount so that you don't have to juggle a lot of gift cards. And he loves the global selection. Nobody else has this much selection of gift cards, over 10,000 gift card options across hundreds of countries. Go to bitrefill.com to sign up. And you can also use the code MyLatinLife for 10% back off your first purchase. Go to bitrefill.com for more information. As you were kind of saying, like, if you just buy a piece of land with some coffee plants on it or whatever, it's kind of tough to get that going if there's not already an infrastructure of a guy and a local distributor or a market or whatever. But it sounds like you're coming in that early. 
I was almost thinking you'd be buying maybe like existing functional farms off of other people based on like the EBITDA or the net profit type of thing. But you're more getting in at a lower level where is it like raw land? Is there just like maybe one small dingy building for the for the the caretaker on on the land or like you know what I mean? Like how functional do you do you look at functional farms or is that too big a scale or too expensive and it's better to go for these sort of semi-developed or undeveloped pieces of land? Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. And that that is uh, an important consideration. One of the farms I recently bought had 17,000 coffee plants on it. And so uh, it, it is something. And so that provides me some income. Uh, it is more than the administrator needs. So I've got an administrator there. He's doing the coffee uh, and he gives me some money back. So to me, that's great. But these earnings, when you calculate it out with coffee on a small scale, especially we're talking like 30 year turnover. It's not like a rental property. It's low. So like, it's not even very attractive in that sense to me, at least. Um, so the coffee's like, it's nice, but it doesn't like, if it doesn't have coffee, that does not deter me. So the yield I'm is, happy. The yield's not high on coffee. Yeah, and, and, and why is that? So, I mean, the reason that is, is because, and so you can, you can look into 30 or 50 hectare farms where they are maybe producing um, a reasonable standard of living for the owner. Um, but it, that's on a scale, right? On a small scale, the coffee basically is able to pay the guy that works it, right? It's a small scale setup. So for it to pay more than that, right, to give you some back, because you've got to put the guy there to work it. Um, you have to get to a certain 10 or 20,000 coffee plants and well-managed. Um, and it's tricky. It's tricky. Again, I, I, I mentioned just once uh, dishonesty, but it exists, right? So when you trust somebody to manage money for you, it's really easy for them to show you different numbers, right? Then, So... You know, you have to really consider these things. I often like uh, it not to have the coffee because it's it's less work for us. We can immediately start putting in the the uh, firewood crops and the and the and the fence post crops that we really like. But coffee, yeah. again, coffee does provide some money, and it's a good crop. I love coffee. Uh, I and, love. And so I'm in a, di- in I'm an addition addict. to the, yeah, I'm, I'm drinking coffee too. Um, the the, the person that you have managing the farm, is that also the recollector? Is that also the person, you know, picking the coffee berries off the tree? Or is that different people that come in once every six months? Yeah, right. So picking coffee is a lot of work. It's, it's uh, hand-picked here in Colombia. And so what the administrator does is he hires people at that time. It's, it's even to the point where he could uh, theoretically pick all the coffee, but because it all comes in at the same time, it would be falling off before he got to the end, you know? And mm-hmm. so he might only need to spend mm, three or four months out of the year on that farm, right? The, my administrator has his own farm. He's a neighbor of the farm. And so mm-hmm. he manages his coffee and my coffee. Uh, but 
So it's not his full-time job, but when it's a full-time job, it's a full-time job. And he brings in five or six people and to manage right. it, to pick the it harvest. all it, fast, right? Because when those things start going red, you got to be picking them. Or they start, they, you know, they get sobre maduro. They start falling on the ground. Yep, overripe. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so you find coffee to be, you know, a little too intensive or just not worth the money. And so that's why you're kind of moving over to other crops like the firewood trees and so forth. Let me tell you really the original reason I stopped with coffee. We were roasting, we were packaging, we had our own coffee, we were exporting. And they started to, the, the, government i guess you could say they started it started this it seemed like it was getting trickier they kept changing the rules and it was getting well i think this is like four or five years ago now they declared that coffee here in colombia is patrimonio del estado it's a uh, it's cultural uh, heritage basically. cultural heritage yes so uh they charge for exporting they charge one dollar a pound uh and it goes to the coffee federation one dollar a pound for roasted coffee and $6 a pound for unroasted coffee. And at that point, I threw up my hands and I said, you know what? I'm going to grow something that isn't, you know, belong to the, so that doesn't belong yeah. to the government. Um, and so that's when I kind of moved more into consulting. I help local people do it. I'm happy to help, you know, put them in contact with anybody I know in the, in the United States uh, because I wasn't doing it on the scale necessary. You know, it was it was always kind of a hobby for me. It was always kind of a and coffee uh, for me because I'm into, you know, all the different uh, permaculture, environmental things, the, the polycultures. Um, and and since I did that, I've been so much happier because when you get into the realm of government, uh, it just gets tricky. And so there is uh, some sort of independence here. Uh, the federal government is far away. We say in La Otra Cordillera, and the other mountain range is the government. <laughs> and we're here, and they can say whatever they want, but we're over here, you know, come and get us, you know. And they don't. They're, they don't they're, the enforcement doesn't really make it out here. Um, but when you start trying to export, you know, you do have to go through the bureaucracy, the aduanas, mm-hmm. the customs, and, and all that. And so I started looking into how I could uh, strengthen local markets uh, with some crops, and that has been uh, a load off of my mind. As we scale this up, which I will continue to do, uh, you know, it's my life's work. Obviously, you can, I'll be able to bring in somebody who's an expert in that or team up with somebody who's already, you know, has that solved. But one of the challenges is, uh, and this is true for any small business, it's hard to become a master at everything. You know, I'm really good at what I do, but now I have to learn another thing. Maybe I'm, you know, maybe I could be good at it, but do I have time to be good at it? So that's that's tricky in whatever you do. But especially, I would say with uh, with my particular project, investing in farmland. Now I have to be a marketer. Now I have to be a customs agent. You know, now I have to right. learn about laws. I have to be a lawyer. I don't have time. Ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> I get it. So I, I guess you probably have learned a lot about how to export coffee. Have you learned about maybe how it works on the U.S. side, like how to get it in the country, pay the tariffs or whatever, sell it in the States? Yeah, yeah. And so this is where I say that coffee is a really competitive space. Uh, I don't know if it's saturated yet, but it is very competitive. 
in the States, they want the unroasted beans so they can roast it, uh, which also happens to be the highest uh, uh, fee for the Coffee Federation. And locally, the people want to roast it so they can capture more of the value chain. And so that's where really where the tricky part comes in. Everybody wants to capture as much of that value chain as, as possible because it's huge. If you look at like the price people sell beans for, uh, you know, dried beans, unroasted to the Coffee Federation, and you take that down to a cup of coffee in a cafeteria, um, it's, it's enormous the amount of value that, 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 that is there to be captured. So everybody wants right. to capture as much of it as possible. But the, there's, a, there's a volume issue, too. So if you get in with a roaster, okay, I'm going to send you unroasted beans. You like what I do. Uh, sure, yeah, fill up a cargo container. And it's like, well, that's the, I can't fill up a cargo container. Like, you know, so there's a scale issue, uh, a competitive issue. Coffee is uh, among all the products because we in the tropics, we can grow so many things. One of the things I'm getting into right now, I've been experimenting with uh, essential oils. So we can grow all of these medicinal mm. plants and we can eucalyptus uh, oil and stuff. Yes, we got eucalyptus, we got uh, cypress, uh, lemongrass, uh, and so I've been planting a lot of cypress trees in my agroforestry systems because the prunings, I can boil that out and get uh, some cypress oil, and this is an incredible product. Uh, nobody's doing this. Well, not nobody. Somebody's doing it, but uh, it's a really under-competed market where you know maybe my time is better spent. If I've Makes got a hundred things I can grow, why should I be worried about coffee, which is like the most uh, saturated market of of the, of all of them? Even avocados. Yeah, makes sense. Even avocados is growing a lot in Colombia because to compete with the Mexican avocados, but the USA cannot get enough avocados. There's just so much demand. Right. Uh, unlike coffee, there's like uh, there is a lot of demand, but it's getting into like specialty niche. Right. So we can move on from coffee. I do have one final question that I, I'm very curious about. So is it is it weighed per kilogram or like per big burlap sack? And how much does the big burlap sack cost or the kilogram cost? Okay. So, yes, uh, there is a price per kilo, but also a price per uh, – the big burlap sack is an eighth of a ton, and that's called una carga. And una carga is an eighth of a ton, 125 kilos. And that is the amount a mule can carry. La carga, (laughs) right? So it's two sacks is la carga. And the burlap sack is a half a carga. Okay, so that's 62 and a half kilos. And the local producers, that's what they talk about. They talk about el precio por carga. And so it could be, well, anyways, in Colombian pesos, uh, it could be, you know, a million, a million five, two million pesos por carga. And it goes up and down. And you can sell ki- kilogram, ki- kilos as well. Um, you know, 18,000 Okay, so a million cop kilo. to USD is like 250 bucks right now. Yeah. So 250 think, bucks for 185 kilos. Yeah, I think right now it Unroasted. might be... Might be three fifty, yeah. It might be three fifty unroasted. I think it's one point four. Last uh, I think yesterday I checked. Um, and what are you paying per kilo of roasted over there? Here it's like, mm, 
I think it's like 280 pesos, which is like 15 bucks. Okay, uh, let me think here. I pay, uh, I would say spot on about $5 a pound for the good stuff. Uh, you can get but it's cheaper not per stuff. Pound, it's per kilo, right? Well, okay. So when it's roasted, we, you, they package it up, right? So yeah. I, so I buy, you know, from my, from the local coffee roaster. I buy coffee from local farmers, and I buy it in a one pound uh, presentation, you know, roasted uh, bean coffee. So okay. you know, maybe I could get it a little Out cheaper, but I'm supporting my my local people. Yeah. Okay, I think a kilo is like two point four pounds. Anyway, yeah, it doesn't matter. Two, two, okay, yeah. okay, okay. That sounds basically like what I'm. Oh, that'd be, yeah, that'd be like. There is something bucks. here. Uh, a Colombian pound is half a kilo, so that's really one point one pounds. They call that grams. The, yeah, five hundred grams. I don't know. Do they do that in Mexico? They call that a yeah, pound. Yes, five hundred grams or a kilo. We don't call it a pound. Like what they call the libra. Libra, Something. una libra. They say, well, this is a libra americana is 454 <laughs> grams, you know. Okay. Yeah, I think a, a half kilo here, 500 grams would be, is like 130, 140 pesos, which is like seven bucks to nine bucks, depending on the exchange rate. Yeah, that's pretty good. And you think about it. I mean, in the, in the United States, I went that's to- That's roasted. Was, excellent quality. Right. I was in the United States. I went to Costco, you know, and, and so this is an example just to put the nail in the coffin of coffee. I went to Costco <laughs> and they've got this Jaguar coffee from Costa Rica. It's got all the rainforest stamps <laughs> and it's the best coffee, you know, and it's five dollars a pound. And so and they sell it in three pound bags or whatever at Costco. And it's like, OK, this market is so saturated. Everybody in the world wants to sell their coffee. and. And even some special coffees now are five, six bucks a pound in the United States. So, Jaguar. Yeah, it Jaguar. It makes me laugh. So true. Like a little frog on it. Yeah, Rainforest the rainforest. Certified. And that is the biggest scam. I Man, so we learned so much about coffee. Like that rainforest, I called them up and I'm like, hey, man, I'm doing all this cool stuff. I, come, I meet all your requirements, ecological requirements. He's like, oh, that's great. Send me $2,500 and I'll give you the stamp. And I'm like, wait, what? I got to pay? And he's like, yeah, yeah. You send this and and, I'll, and every year you pay me $2,500 and I'll give you the stamp. And I'm, I'm like, don't you want to like visit me? And he's like, no, 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 I believe you. And it's like, it's the wow. biggest scam in the world. It's just pay money and then you get this little frog on your bag. It's, it's so dumb. <laughs> Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Quick break from the podcast to tell you about Language Blend, the best new way to learn Spanish. Language Blend was co-founded by Jake Nomada, friend of the podcast, decade of experience in Latin America. And Jake and his team, they put everything into this program that they wish they had in terms of how to level up quickly with your Spanish language skills. Because the faster that you can get conversationally fluent in Spanish, the better the experience that you're going to have in Latin America. So go to languageblend.com for more information. That's hilarious. Okay, so I think um, we've, we've killed my dreams on this episode of becoming a cafetero because it just maybe is... Uh, 
not that profitable. It sounds like a lot of work. Well, um, it's a lot of work and you could do it, but you have to, you should, everybody out there, you should be aware. The money's in the roasting. And if you want, if you got a, a cousin that's in the roasting business, maybe a coffee farm is a really good idea. But just be aware that there's a lot of people out there in the coffee space and there's hundreds and hundreds of different products that we can grow. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and, and if it's less, you know, like, like on, on, that's on a good internet, point. So, your niche, so you know, find that same land, I was going to ask this. So sorry to interrupt. I'm doing a bad job today, but I'm just so excited. Um, so that same land that you're assessing to buy, right? Can it basically grow anything? Can you look at the same plot of land and say, this could be coffee, this could be platino, this could be eucalyptus, this could be uh, berries, maybe berries is different, but like you can take that same plot of land in Colombia in that sweet spot elevation and, you know, grow lots of different stuff, right? Or are, are you looking, or do you have to change the characteristics of what type of farm you're buying? No, you're exactly right. Uh, it's not everything. So like mangoes need hotter weather and figs need colder weather. And so there's a, there's ranges for all these crops. But but yes, I could grow blackberries. I could grow avocados. I can grow bananas. I can grow coffee. I could grow a hundred other things. And I just have to decide, you know, what do I want to plant? You know, almost everybody from the lowlands to the highlands grows corn and beans. Uh, and so some of these fast crops... They even plant them in between the coffee rows. Mm. And so like what 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 perennial do I want to plant? And then I can crop even intercrop between that, uh, whatever you want. Uh, and so one of the things we're working on is these uh, flowers, heliconia flowers. Um, yep. They these go up to twenty five hundred meters all the way down to six, seven hundred meters. So the whole range of land that I'm looking at, I could grow these heliconia flowers on. Um, and so it, it is like what you say, you could pick, you could pick whatever you want. You don't even have to change much. The only consideration is once the land gets degraded almost exclusively throughout Latin America, they will transform it into potrero, uh, pasture, cow pasture. And so degraded land generally gets transformed into just a grass Bracharia grassland. And so if you do buy that, you should check because it's not all always degraded, but a lot of it is. And that's why it's potrero now. Uh, you may need to uh, do some things to build back your soil quality and soil fertility, which, again, in the tropics is so fast. It's not like in Wisconsin where you got to like spend years to flipping your compost pile so it degrades. Like I pile up biomass and in like in three months, it's like black earth again. This is so fast in the tropics. So safe to say you're all about plants. Like you're not getting into, uh, what do they call it? Ganaria uh, and livestock and stuff like that. Ganaria, yes. Well, okay. I've done sheep. I've done goats. You know, we, I, I've been focusing a lot on steep slopes. But a little further down the mountain uh, with my wife, we put up a tree nursery and we're working with the ganaderos to we sell them uh, forage trees, so local trees that fix nitrogen and the cows eat. So we're helping them transform their cow pasture into silvopasture, pasture, uh, you know, cercas vivas, uh, living fences, and that sort of stuff. 
I have my eye on some land down there too. Um, but you know, if there's a saying we say here in Colombia, si haces una cosa, no haces la otra. So I also have to be a little careful not to uh, tap myself out. You know, I can't buy every right. piece of land I see. So I try to be very careful. How much can I really manage? What are the real opportunities? How fast can I make the money back or make a profit, a, you know, a cash flow on this? Um, like I said, I'm almost to 100 acres, but I'm not rushing to get there. Uh, it'll come. It'll come over time. I just, you know, it's so exciting. Uh, but there is one thing. Um, I think that tourism, and now this is kind of getting into your neck of the woods here. Tourism has been identified in Colombia as the biggest possible thing of uh, sustainable development, tourism. And mm -hmm. so I have thought about tourism both ways. I've thought this is silly and I've thought this is kind of good. And uh, I've been hired before as a simultaneous translator. But my real belief is that tourism can only uh, be an also, right? It can only be and tourism because if right. you don't, if the local community doesn't have a culture, if they're not doing something already, what are the tourists going to come to see? Unless you buy a waterfall. Well, that's right. The waterfall speaks for itself. That's for sure. But, uh, you know, it's like tourism is good. It's a good also thing. Uh, but you have to, you have to think, I don't know. I don't know. People are probably going to get into this space. They're talking about tourism and there is a certain appeal to it. Bring the people in one week, two weeks, show them around, uh, get them out of here. Um, but <laughs> But I don't know. And then the long-term thing, I think there's a lot of space. This is a niche. So people out there who are kind of interested in this, there's a niche down here for people to get involved in participating with the local community, supporting tourism, but also supporting development in other areas, right? Food, agriculture, mm -hmm. uh, even mining. I mean, there's, a, there's different things that uh, can be done. And when I talk about mining here, there's gold and silver mining, right? So that's that's kind of controversial locally. But would it be less controversial if it was artisanal mining? Is it is it less controversial if local people take that silver and craft it into artisanal goods? To me, that is mm -hmm. sustainable development, right? So I I don't know. There's so many different things to do in these niches. And what's cool and what I kind of want to emphasize is Local Colombian people appreciate foreigners that come with an idea that they actually want to participate. They want to maybe learn the language, but they want to help them develop, right? They have this idea that the white person means civilization and development. And, you know, okay, don't, don't excoriate me. I, I learned this from local people. Um, but if you have that mindset, like we're going to get better together, the people are really appreciative and they like that idea. They want new ideas. They want you to bring uh, a machine or a technology from the United States or from Europe so that they can do things better, that they can make mm -hmm. things uh, you know, more exciting, more possible, more profitable. Uh, all of this stuff is, is a world just opening up. Incredible. So you're bullish on the essential oils, a couple of other things. Um, I, I wanted to get one thing clear. So are you typically 
now, I guess like, you know, 10 years into it, you've learned a lot along the way. Are you looking for things that you can export internationally or are you looking to basically just sell into the local market and, and not have to worry about the, the, the aduanas? <laughs> yeah, I recently or maybe the last three, four years, I did make that decision like, okay, I'm going to focus on the local markets. Um, and so here's the thing. You need investment to do anything, right? So you're going to invest to do this thing. Okay, so I'm going to invest. I'm going to plant some lemongrass. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to invest in a machine to transform that into essential oils. Okay, now I have a product. I can sell it and get money. Or I can invest yet again in getting it certified to sell it internationally. So I decided to focus on things I could sell locally. So when we get to that step, it can pay for itself and we can decide if it's worth it to invest again in getting it exported. I would love to export uh, one day. We did uh, recently, I helped uh, a local entrepreneur. We put up a a mushroom lab. So we're growing uh, a few different types of mushrooms, even some of the more exciting types. And, uh, you know, we could export that. They're way more expensive, but it costs six, seven thousand dollars to get the certifications to certify the lab. So we started selling locally, and that's going really well for us right now. And one day we would like to get those certifications. But I would recommend, I mean, just in my case, my experience is that make sure you can sell it locally first. And locally doesn't mm. necessarily mean to your neighbor. I mean, you can sell in Bogota. You could sell in Medellin. Uh, you don't need any certifications for that. But to get it out of the port, to get it to the United States, you do. And they're expensive. And so mm-hmm. we did make that decision. We're focusing on things we could sell locally. And if it makes sense, we can get some certifications and take it to the next level. Um, part of that is because I don't have a customs expert on my team. So maybe I need that. Maybe one day that'll come into my life. Um, but, you know, you everybody's got to take the steps. And so for me, it was important to have that intermediary step where there's money coming in. Right. You right. got to get to so a be cash profitable locally. Yes. Yes. Mm. That's fascinating. And so for someone that's listening to this. What would you recommend? So maybe they're already in expat mode. They're down with the idea of starting to invest in the local economy. What are some good first steps? Well, okay, so you're already an expat. Uh, first of all, I would say make sure you are getting out of the expat communities. Get get yourself known in a community. I find that uh, people approach me about their entrepreneurship, right? They say, hey, I got this idea. I've done this thing but we need some investment. I'm talking like $500, you know, I need $500 to take this to the next level. Uh, you know, and so I am at the point where I can qualify different uh, projects for very minimal investments, right? So I would say uh, get integrated into a local community and, you know, take down your, your, you know, be a little bit humble and start by trying to invest in people people that are already trying to do things, 
hopefully that gets something that connects to you. If you're in a local community and you're doing something, uh, they'll, they'll likely search you out. Um, and so try to get involved with your local community. Start small. Start small. There are so many obstacles. Like we've been talking for an hour, but like I could go on and on and on and on about all the lessons I've learned. And how do I learn these things? Through failure, through losing money. And so, yes, we've had some success and it has been more than the failure, but failures are come through losing money. So start small. Uh, invest in local people, small amounts. See if you can help them. Do they have a product? What do they need? They need a little machine? Get the machine. The machine backs up the loan, right? You're going to get some equity or get a loan, but the machine's yours, right? This machine is mine. If it doesn't work out, I'm taking the machine home with me, right? So you got a little collateral there. And then help them. Use your social media presence to try to sell their product internationally mm-hmm. or locally. You know, try to get involved in a small scale Continue to learn Spanish, continue to learn the culture, and get integrated. Uh, that would be my advice. Uh, or, and or team up with other people that have more experience than you, whether they're locals or, or internationals. Get integrated into a community, and the more you can integrate, the better, because going it alone is the best way to reinvent the wheel and learn all <laughs> the lessons that we've already learned. You're going to learn them all by yourself. And lose money and all that, all that fun stuff that we all, we've all been through. Makes sense. Makes sense. Don't do it alone. That that counts for the investment migration people, for people trying to do residencies yourself instead of just hiring someone for a couple hundred bucks. Um, anyway, uh, so Alex, people people can invest with you. Yes, uh, they can. Um, I'm working on, so I just got on Twitter. I'm kind of finding my, my niche and I realized, wait, I have a product. Uh, I have people investing. We have a Colombian business. We have it all set up. We, uh, we have stock in our company. Uh, it's a fund for sustainable development. Mostly what we're doing right now is real estate. Uh, but, but I'm interested in expanding it to the other things. Um, I haven't found the best way to integrate this local entrepreneurship yet. So right now it's only real estate, the fund. Uh, you can DM me on Twitter at EcoInstant. Uh, reach out to me. I'm still putting together my marketing funnel. I'm putting together, but I got the website on Twitter. You could check it out, see what we've posted. I've got like six years of blog. So you can like see what I've been doing. And uh, yeah, reach out to me. I'm still working on getting it to, to be super Twitter professional and funnels and all that stuff. I'm trying to learn a new. Uh, and if, hey, and if you are like a marketing guru and you want to like uh, help me figure it out, everybody I've found so far wants to charge me $300 for their mastermind group. So I'm I'm trying to figure it out right now for free. But but I I. I do let people invest with me, but I vet you. I don't let anybody invest with me because it's a hassle. So I have very few investors. I vet you, so be prepared for that. I'm not and like. What would we be investing in? Real estate, like sort of semi-residential, or would it be more farms? Um, okay, well, it depends because the fund is actually open-ended. It can do. Right now, we have a nice property where we'd like to build a hotel. Uh, we did a we did a raise, and we didn't get enough. To, we thought to build our own hotel. So what we did is we bought into a hotel that already existed, and we have been using that cash flow to fix it up. 
We are we have a buyer, so we thinking we're thinking about maybe by around Christmas we're going to sell it. I think we're going to be doubling up our original investment there. We'll probably buy another hotel. Um, it depends. So if somebody wants to come in and invest a hundred thousand dollars to get that investor visa, probably we would build the hotel we have. If someone wants to come in and invest a thousand dollars, you know, it's not like we're going to be able to do anything new with that. So we would uh, consider either investing in a property we already have, or even offering, for example, some investors that are already in, offering them you know, share buybacks or something like that. It depends on the size of the investment. It depends on the person coming in. Uh, it really depends because we have a lot of flexibility with our fund, which is the way we like it. Hmm. Well, Alex, fascinating story. Super inspiring to me. Um, and I think uh, the audience definitely love this one. You're also very well spoken. Um, you're, you're ready to go. I mean, uh, so... <laughs> I'm uh, really uh, impressed with how you, you handled the podcast here today. And we thank you so much for your time. Vance, I had a great time. And uh, maybe I, uh, when I have a Twitter spaces, I might want to inv- invite you sometime. Would that be cool? Yeah, hell yeah. Awesome, man. Thanks so much. And, uh, you know, follow us on Twitter. I will be promoting you and promoting this podcast to all of my followers and um, some of my other communities that don't use Twitter as much. Uh, mm-hmm. But this community of expats, sorry to just, uh, you know, take control here. This community do it, do of it. expats, I really think we need to get together and make sure that we can help people avoid the worst and, uh, you know, get get the best out of Latin America uh, because there's a lot of bad stories out there. And, and that is for me because people just want to learn their lessons all by themselves instead of, you know, tapping into the knowledge that we've already gained. So this sort of podcast, thank you, Vance, for doing it. Keep it up, and hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. So people can get in touch with Alex. Mention My Latin Life and treat you real nice. Uh, this has been another episode of the My Latin Life podcast. Again, my guest today was Alex, Eco Instant, Eco Bank Development. Thanks, everyone, for listening.